right, all right, all right. Here we go. You guys grab your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 7. Actually, we're going to finish chapter 7 out today. If you're with us for the first time, we have been in a series for the last couple of months uh, looking at the life of Jesus through uh, the Gospel of Mark. Really, uh, we, we attribute it, the writing of it to uh, a man named Mark, John Mark, but really it's the account of Peter, the Apostle Peter's account that Mark is telling us. And so we're going to be looking at a, a continuation of uh, a story that really started last week as Jesus unpacks what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we're going to finish chapter 7 out. You can grab a Bible underneath the seats if you don't have one. Chapter 7, I'm going to read starting at verse 24, go all the way through the end of the chapter, and the words are going to be on the screen. And uh, our tradition is we read these words out loud together, so appease me and, uh, and join me in reading. Verse 24, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But, he, but she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs on the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Verse 31, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his hand. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray. This is God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, both the reading and the hearing of it, and we pray that this word would do what it's intended to do, that it would uh, illumine who Jesus is, his person and his work, God, that we would see uh, the gospel clearly, his life, death, and resurrection, and what it means through these words and the implication of this passage, and more than that, Lord, that you would change us. We pray for all those churches here in Kingstown who right now are assembling and gathering like we are, and opening the word and worshiping and singing songs uh, to the, uh, the, the God of all gods, the King of all kings, and we pray that you would meet with them as you meet with us. Holy Spirit, we're here not because we have to. We're here because you, you do command us to, but we get to. We get to be amongst your people, and we pray that we would leave this place knowing that we've been in your presence um, and that we would worship you just for the opportunity. We pray that in Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. Amen. So if you're with us for the first time, we've been a couple months through the study of, uh, of Mark. And just, uh, uh, I guess, a, a heads up, uh, we, we've, we're going to finish through chapter 8. And at the conclusion of that, we're going to uh, take a little siesta. We're going to pause 
go into another series and we'll come back to, uh, to the Gospel of Mark in the beginning of 2019 and go through, through Easter. Just, so that's just what's coming up in the, in the days ahead. But for the study of Mark, we've been studying really the, the life of Jesus, uh, this, this fast-paced journey that Mark, uh, through the eyes of Peter, is taking us on as we look at uh, Jesus' person and his work, and really the thing that, that the leaders, that the elders and I um, are hoping that we get out of this study is just the, you know, the right glimpse of, of Jesus that we would see him and lean toward him, learn more about him, and in seeing who Jesus is, our hearts would be embraced uh, you know, by him, but we would also embrace him ourselves. Now, this, this question of who is Jesus, that, that's the question that kind of permeates all the Gospels, right? Yeah, who is Jesus? Uh, that question is the, is the question that's really pushing this story here in the Gospel of Mark forward. Who is this man that shows up out of nowhere and has such authority that the wind and the, the waves obey him that people who are dead, like, like dead, dead, in the grave, no breath, decaying, would get up out of the grave, would resurrect to, to life? Who is this man that nature itself would bow down to his commands? That's who we're trying to get to know as we're reading a gospel. That's why we take time to, to read about the gospels. It gives us a picture of, of not just God, but God in the flesh, uh, of, of, of God himself in the person of Jesus. John's gospel says, the word was God, the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Who is that God? It's, it's Jesus. And we're trying to see who he is through the words of scripture and particularly in Mark's gospel, he shows us Jesus' actions. He didn't give us a lot of fluff. We don't get a lot of details to any of the stories. This story in particular is not a lot of detail. He gives us Jesus' actions, but from that we see the goodness of the Lord himself. A little bit of review. Last week, if you were with us, we learned that only those who live their faith, not from the outside in, but from the inside out, are those that are a part of God's family. They are part of that. I mean, they, they are in right standing with God. Those words are simply metaphors for what we would call a Christian, someone that's trusting in, obeying, following Jesus. It's not clean hands, even hands that have been washed with soap that God is after, right? He's after clean hearts, pure hearts. How do we get a pure heart? Only God can do that. It's, it's not about anything that you in and of yourself can do to make yourself look good or make God think you're good. He would say that it's all about you having a purity of heart. And how do we do that? We trust Jesus. We follow him. We learn to obey him. And that really is the, um, the, the, the clamor behind all of Jesus' confrontations with religious leaders and even common people like us. We're all straying to figure out the reality of, of who Jesus is and Jesus is, is, you know, beckoning us by the Spirit to trust what the Spirit is saying. So in our text today, we're going to get two illustrations that takes this idea from last week, what makes one defiled or clean before God. And Jesus is not going to um, tell us more about it in regards to food. He's going to show us the reality with people. And that brings us to our text, verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered our house and did not want anyone to know yet, uh, to know, yet he could not be hidden. And so Jesus has gone from uh, 
an area south of the Sea of, the sea of Galilee to uh, a northern area outside of proper first century Israel. He's gone to the cities of Tyre and Sidon, which are uh, western cities on the border of the uh, Mediterranean, uh, uh, Mediterranean Sea. And he's in Gentile territory, which means there, there aren't very many Jewish people there. Why is he there? He's trying to get away. There's been so much contact, there's been so much conflict that Jesus not only wants to get away, he sort of wants to get away from, um, get away from all of that so that he can rest. What the text is telling us is that anywhere Jesus goes, people have heard about him. I mean, he can't go anywhere where they haven't heard of his authority or of his uh, miracle-working ability to touch people, speak words to them, and whatever their plight is, immediately they're healed. And this is one instance that that's happening. He's coming there. He's trying to like, get away from all this stuff. And immediately someone notices that he's there. He's in the hood, so to speak. And what happens? He is introduced to really another d devastating circumstance. We learn in verse 25 exactly what that is. Immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Here, here's, here's an instance, uh, an opportunity for us to either keep reading and speed forward and, and just try to figure out what's going to happen next, like, like the Bible is telling us a story that we just got to know the end of, or we could do what we probably should do as we're reading the Bible, just pause and let the weight of these sentences, these verses, actually impact us. A lot of times we can read the, the Bible devoid of any emotion, but we, 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 we don't do service to ourselves or the Spirit of God that inspired these words when we do that, because what's happening here is an extreme circumstance. I mean, it's, it's, it's beyond devastating. There's a woman here that has uh, a circumstance, a devastating circumstance that she can't get herself out of. Here's the thing. Mark doesn't give us a lot of detail. We don't know a lot about the woman. We don't know a lot about the little girl that's the uh, kind of in the background of what's going on. But we do know that somehow she's afflicted with an unclean spirit. She has a demon. Um, we can guess that this situation is extremely difficult. It's messy. And uh, typical episode. I mean, I think if we saw this, we would get freaked out. I mean, if you came close to someone, even someone that you knew that was manifesting a, a demon, um, think about what you would do. Some of us would be offended. We would, we would gasp, what's, what's going on? We might even turn our heads. Some of us would walk away. In the social media culture that we live in today, some of us would break our phone out, take a video of it, and we post it to, to Instagram or Snapchat. I mean, it's, we would have all those different kinds of reactions. But what the Bible is encouraging us to do is to pause and to at least have a little bit of sympathy, perhaps even a little bit of empathy for what's going on here. This is an extreme picture of, of desperation and even hopelessness. This woman has no hope. And, and I think the truth is, most of us, if we were experiencing this or if we saw, knew somebody else, I mean, we would not want to, to have the situation that she's having. It's a mom in distress with a daughter that has... Uh, a condition, so to speak, that neither one of them can do a thing about it. And what does this woman do? She throws herself down at Jesus' feet. I mean, it's a picture of desperation, isn't it? I mean, think about what you would do in the circumstance. And what's interesting here is what she's doing 
would be absolutely culturally inappropriate for her to do. And we learn why in the next verse. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. One commentator says this is just a whole list. This verse reads like a list of demerits. There's one negative thing after other that tells us who this woman is just a little bit and why what she's doing was not the cultural norm of the day. And the first thing is that she's a woman, okay? Women, I mean, don't, don't take it offensively, anybody in the room, but women in the first century were second-class citizens. Now, this doesn't happen just to be a woman. She's a Gentile woman, and no Gentile woman was supposed to come into contact with a Jewish uh, man uh, just by their protocol, by what the law said. Particularly, she's not just a woman. She's not just a Gentile woman. She's a Syrophoenician woman. And the Syrophoenicians were enemies of the Jews. The Syrophoenicians were, in and of themselves, thought to be of, of ill repute. A Jew wouldn't go near them because of their bad reputation for bad behavior and, oh, by the way, their uncleanness. They were morally and ethnically unclean. But here's what the text says. It says, this woman, knowing who she was and probably knowing the cultural norm, she threw herself at Jesus' feet and then she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Um, interesting note, this, 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 that's why a little bit of understanding of the, the, the language, the, the, the original language the Bible was written in is helpful. Um, one of the words here, particularly the word begged, is a verb that means, that suggests that she kept on begging. And so she didn't just ask one time, Jesus rejected her, and she just, all right, so I guess I can't get what I wanted. The text says she kept on begging. She was persistent. She wouldn't take no for an answer. There's a parallel account of this story of this Syrophoenician woman and her demon-possessed daughter in Matthew's gospel. And Matthew, who gives a little more detail, talks about the way that she was so persistent that the disciples came to Jesus and just said, why, why don't you just send her away? Fortunately, Jesus doesn't do that. He does something else. Verse 27, and Jesus actually started talking to her. Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And so Jesus does, doesn't send the woman away. But, I mean, if you're reading like the words that I'm reading, I mean, this, this is a nice language. Like, if this is Jesus on a good day, Lord have mercy, what would he say to somebody on a bad day? Right. I mean, these are um, these are kind of they feel like insulting words. Um, this isn't the, the sweet, huggable, uh, you know, I, I love you, Lamb of God, Jesus, that we learn about in Sunday school saying these words. Right. It doesn't seem like that. That's the kind of God that that, that we're reading about right here. Uh, anybody, a, a dog person, you got a dog, just love your dog. I only got a few here. What's wrong with the rest of y'all? All right. So. So, of course, the, the story is about children and dogs. There's, a, there's something there that Jesus is saying about children and dogs. And so let, let me explain it this way. Uh, in the Western world, particularly in some parts of the United States, I mean, we just love our dogs, right? Um, I, I mean, I like in Kingstown and some parts of D.C. Metro, if you've ever been to Arlington, Sherlington, like Sherlington has 20 dogs for every five kids in the apartment buildings around there. You go to Sherlington. And the restaurants in Sherlington, they got like spots for dogs at the table. They give you a Scooby snack and a bowl of water before your main dish comes, if you're a dog with a human being you know, right around, you know, taking you around. 
So we, we kind of love our dogs, right? I mean, it's, it's not just the neighborhood, it's the doggyhood, um, especially in Kingstown. I got up at 6 o'clock this morning. I was out running errands about 6.30, and I saw more dogs with their owners about out and about in Kingstown than there were people out at that time. So, you know, we're a culture that likes dogs. First century, Jesus culture, not so much. They, they didn't. Dogs were not valued. I'm not saying that they weren't people, perhaps affluent people that had dogs. But for the most part, these people didn't value having a dog like we would consider having a dog. In fact, dogs in that society were, were scavengers. They were dirty. They were unclean. They were street dogs. They were just fending for themselves, going to the trash, causing a havoc, rabbit, all that kinds of stuff. And if you um, were in that culture and you were Jewish, you definitely wouldn't have liked a, a, a dog. And in fact, the, the Jews had a, uh, uh, a very derogatory term that they used for people who were not Jews. Gentiles. They would call them not just Gentiles, they would call them dogs. And so what it sounds like immediately is that Jesus is using this same kind of language and he's using it to insult this woman, calling her a dog like, like she's um, rabbit, that she's uh, a scavenger, that she's dirty, that she's unclean, that she belongs on the street. That's what it seems like, but actually, he's not actually doing that. Um, actually, what Jesus is doing is he's giving a parable, right? He's telling a parable, and the parable happens to be about children, the children of Israel, and dogs who are everybody else. And, and this is the way a Jewish person saw life. From a Jewish perspective, I mean, they were the chosen people of God, right? I mean, God gave them the Torah, the law they had. They had the temple with, with God and his presence right there in the midst of them. And so this is what they're used to. They're used to being the favorite people of God. Now, of course, God did not mean for the Jews to have this arrogant perspective about themselves, even though he had chosen them in the sovereignty of, his, of, of the goodness of his grace. God wanted Israel in calling them to himself to emanate who he was and be a light for all the other nations to see. They just took that and like kind of messed it up a little bit in their minds. And so, I mean, Israel, I mean, they knew they were the covenant people of God. And then everybody else was kind of like, they were like dogs. And so um, it really was an insult. But what Jesus does here is he takes some of the sting out of the insult. He actually takes this, this idea of, of a scavenger demeaning like dirty dog on the street and he uh, changes the word. So it's not just like an unlikable dog, it's like a puppy. And so this woman catches the glimpse of what he's saying so she's not as put off by what he says and it probably allows her to keep pressing in and be more persistent in, uh, in begging him to do what she's wanting him to do. And, and, and so what is he saying? He's actually explaining the order of his ministry. He's, he's saying, you know what? What I'm doing here on the earth is not random. And the clue is in verse 27. Look at it again. He says, and he said to her, let the children be fed first. He's saying there's an intention, intentionality to his ministry. In other words, anything that Jesus does on the earth, from speaking to people to touching someone to healing them, all the places that he's going uh, aren't random. They're purposeful. In other places in the gospel, Jesus will say, 
I only say and do those things that the Father is telling me to do. And this, this is one of those, those instances. He's saying, you know what? There's, an, there's a precedence to what I'm supposed to do. There's an order to the, the ministry that I'm, that I'm sort of walking out, and it would be premature for me to respond to you because you're not a child. You're, you're other than a child uh, of Israel. You're a dog. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this pretty plainly. Here's what he says. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Again, here's what he's saying. My mission is not random. I've come with purpose. And I've come because God sent me to the children of Israel. The the demonstration and proclamation of the kingdom of God and the gospel uh, to the earth must come to Israel first. And it comes to Israel first because God has decreed it to be so. And I'm not going to get in the way of that. Make no mistake, the gospel of the kingdom of God is going to go out to all peoples of all lands, but not first. And while I'm here on the earth, it's going to go out to Israel. And at one day, I'm going to submit to to people who are going to put me on a cross, and I'm going to die in your place for your sin. And at that point, God is going to resurrect me. I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm going to send my spirit, and I'm going to ordain some apostles to go and take that mission forward. And then it'll be um, told to other peoples in other lands. But right now, I've come for Israel. So that's how he basically answers this woman. That's what this weird, this weird um, string of words actually means. And listen how the woman response to Jesus. Verse 28, and she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs on the table eat the children's crumbs. Um, I think Jesus is stunned by the way she answered because there's a little bit of faith in it. Uh, this is a good answer that she gives him. And she's basically saying, you know, Lord, I, I got it. I understand your mission. I understand that it has purpose. I understand, God, that you know, you can do exactly what God has taught you to do. But here's, here's my perspective. Uh, I don't want to be a child of Israel. I'm not trying to get you off of your mission. I don't even want you to give me the food that was intended for those special people. I just want to sit over here. In fact, I'll get underneath the table and I'll just receive the crumbs that are falling off underneath the table. That's all I need. Because why? Because I believe that you are good enough kind enough, miraculous enough to feed the whole white world. I mean, you're just infinitely good and infinitely able to do all that anybody could ever ask or want or think. And I'm just over here. I'm really a nobody. I'm okay with you calling me a dog. I'm just going to get under the table and I'm going to get the crumbs as they fall off. Jesus is, is impressed. More than impressed, he sees something in this woman he hadn't even seen in his disciples. He sees faith and trust and perhaps the beginning of obedience to follow him, regardless of how immature it is. Look what happens next, verse 29. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter, verse 30. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Kind of a good ending. All right. It started kind of shaky, but it ends kind of well. I mean, remarkable story uh, in the way that Mark is telling it. What's interesting about this woman, she's the only person so far in Mark's gospel that Jesus has told a parable and then he did not have to follow it up with an explanation. She understood what he was talking about, so much so that as he's giving the parable, she uses the same kind of language, this kind of child 
dog language that he's using to reply to him and give him like a second plea uh, for, for him to listen to her and to respond. And the truth is, I mean, she gets it. She gets it like Jesus says in Mark 4. She has ears to hear and eyes to see who Jesus is. This, this woman, like Mark 4, is understanding the secrets of the kingdom of God. Remember that? What's the secret of the kingdom of God? It's the identity of who Jesus is. She understood somehow, perhaps immaturely, she understood the, 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 the importance of not just his person, but the, I mean everything that was backing what he was doing and that what he was saying in that moment. She recognized and trusted and had faith uh, in this deeper understanding of the kingdom of God, more so than even the disciples had done, done so up to this point. Because, I mean, think about it this way. Amazingly, these disciples had walked and talked and hung around Jesus for some amount of time at this point. They had just seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with bread and fish. And yet here, I mean, they don't believe like she believes. They haven't grasped that what this woman has grasped, that Jesus can't just, I mean, I mean, providing a meal is simple for him. In fact, next week, as we look at chapter 8, he's going to give a re- repeat of that providing a meal for thousands of people because they didn't get it the first time. So this woman has this idea that, that Jesus has an abundance. It's not just an abundance of miracles. He has not just an abundance of skill or an ability to just like snap his finger and something that wasn't can now be, Jesus has an abundance of grace. Isn't that, isn't that what's going on? He's had, he has an abundance of grace. That not, there's not just an ability to, to answer a prayer. There's a willingness. There's, there's an empathy there. There's a desire for, for him to come alongside this woman because what? He sees trust. He sees faith. He sees her in her deeper understanding. She gets it. And the result, what does he do? He feeds her kind of spiritually. In other words, he meets her need. And so if we look at last week and then compare it to this week, one of the, uh, the sub points of last week is Jesus for the Jews declared all foods clean. He said, all right, Jews, all right, I know you're, you're kind of squeamish about eating food that's unclean, and rightly so. The Old Testament told you not to do some things. All right, new rule. All foods are clean. Here he, he's, he's taking that picture and moving it forward. And here he's saying all people are clean. You know, the Jews were like, all right, you're a Gentile. I'm staying away from you. I can't even touch you. I'm going to go completely around you, not even going to look your way, talk to you. And he's saying, hey, there's not a person on the planet that's not, uh, that's not available to be cleansed, not just with soap and water, but, but in their heart and actually become a part of the family of God. And Here's the thing. The disciples don't get this yet. They they don't get this picture, this spiritual picture that crumbs from Jesus' table are enough to meet our deepest needs. So the question is, I mean, how do we apply this to our lives? All right. So, I mean, children and and dogs. We we got it. I love dogs. I I don't love dogs. I like a dog. And so, um, story. So I was outside talking to my neighbor. He's watering his plants. I'm jealous because I didn't like watering my plants, but he's watering his. And, uh, and we're talking, and this woman who's a neighbor from ac- across the street um, comes up, and she has this, like, the cutest, handsomest Wheaton, uh, Wheaton, Wheaton Terrier. Is that what it is? 
I mean, he's just a handsome young dog. And he was so handsome that he takes our eye, I mean, he, um, he makes us stop our important man-to-man conversation, and we're just like, oh, look at him, look how precious he is. That's how bad I want a dog, all right? Not just a dog, a dog like that. So, I mean, here's, that was for, 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 for free. All right, that had nothing to do with my sermon. I just felt like I needed to say it. Um, how do we apply this to our lives? I think, I think two things are appropriate, and these aren't necessarily in the text, but they're implications of the text, and, and I see them in the woman. The first is contentment. Contentment. Um, and this is a convicting thought, but in this text, you have a woman that was content not to be a child of God and to receive all the blessings and privileges that there were for the children of Israel as the family of God. All she wanted to do was sit under the table and, and get the crumbs. And of course, I'm speaking in, in parable speak, so to speak. But she was content. She was content in her in her immature knowledge of who Jesus was and what he could do, that he could respond to her like that. And somehow he saw that and he was willing to come alongside her. She asked for so much less. And I mean, she wasn't even demanding to be a child of God. And God responded to her. And the challenge for us is, all right, so overlay that on top of your life. And think about this word contentment. Have you ever made demands of God? Like, Lord, I mean, this, I just need this to happen. I, I, I got to have it right now. Have you ever prayed a prayer? God actually answered the prayer. And then once he answers it, God has, I mean, he's made provision for the very thing that you want. You come back and say, you know, Lord, you know, thank you. But, I mean, you gave me exactly what I wanted. But, but can, I, can I up the ante? Can I, like, ask for something else? I just, I just need a little bit more. And, you know, in a sense, we're supposed to come to God like a little child. I mean, a child does that. But if we're thinking about this idea of contentment, which is what this woman displayed, sometimes if God answers your prayer, that's, that's what you're supposed to receive and, and be joyful about it. You know, the Bible tells us in Proverbs that we're supposed to pray, Lord, give us our daily bread. You know, sometimes we don't, I mean, that's not the prayer of our hearts. Sometimes the prayer of our hearts is, all right, Lord, so I do want my daily bread, but I don't just want crumbs. I actually want to sit at the head seat of the table. I want someone serving me, and I want it to be steak, potatoes, a little bit of plate of salad, and ice cream at the end. Isn't that what we want? Am I the only one that likes (laughs) ice cream for dessert? But we should think about this woman. I mean, she doesn't do that. Surely there is an assertiveness about her. But she comes at this, assert- I mean, she's assertively pressing Jesus because she's desperate. She's hopeless. But she also has a humility about her. It's not my rights, Jesus. It's not, an, it's not an entitlement. Don't we live with such an attitude of entitlement sometimes about everything? I need this. I need it now. And perhaps she, she, in her heart she was saying this. But here's what she resorted to. No, Jesus, I, you're, you're capable of everything, and I'll just take crumbs, and we should commend her for that. Here's the other thing. The first was contentment for your life. The second is worth. I think many of us, even in this room, are just as desperate as this woman. Think about your life. Think about your kids, those that you love, and the situations that you're in. And there's some situations that we have that we have just as much desperation as this woman does, 
But even as I say that, some of us won't do what she did. We don't have the courage or the wherewithal to come to the Lord like she did. And I think it's one of two reasons. We don't do it because of pride. Sometimes we don't do it because we don't think we're important enough. And, uh, and there's words for that. It's, it, basically, we're rejecting Jesus because of our pride and because of our pity, our self-pity. So, I mean, ways that we reject Jesus as Savior. It, it's, this is a person that says, you know, Jesus, I know you're cool. I know you can do everything. I got it. I don't, I don't really need anything. It's like somebody offering you, I, um, I mean, you, you need my help. It's like, no, I got it. And you're like struggling, right? We do that a lot. This can also be called self-sufficiency. And there's a lot of us that live like this. And if you're self-sufficient, you're prideful, here's what you say. I don't need to be saved from anything. I'm fine living life in my own strength. I got it, Jesus. In fact, I've got a righteousness of my own that's going to carry me all the way to the end, even until eternity. And you should be scared of that. Because you're righteous. I mean, there's no such thing as having a righteousness of your own. And at some point, God is going to call you on it. Here's a second thing. If it's not self-confidence that keeps us from rejecting Jesus as Savior, it's, it's self-pity. And this is the one that we should have sympathy and empathy for our own selves and for those around us. Because when we reject Jesus out of self-pity, what we're saying is we, we've persuaded ourselves that we are so terrible that not only do we not accept ourselves, but God would not accept us as well. And that he has no ability to save us. We're not worth saving. It's an, it's, it's an attitude of worthlessness. And that's sad. And so what this looks like is we become so self-absorbed in the struggle of our own lives that, that things that we're burdened by, we begin to believe that we can't get ourselves out of the rut and neither can God. I mean, God wouldn't even want to. Why would God care that much about me to come and save me to even care for me? So pity says, you know what? I, I just can't approach God because I look at myself in the mirror and this is what I see. And it's like, ah, and surely God sees the same thing. Why would God want to save me? We refuse to seek God. We reject his offer to save us and to help us, not because we think we're too good, like the person in pride and self-confidence. We think that God can't save us because we're worthless. And the truth is, we can come into Christianity under the guise of knowing a little bit of the gospel and still live in that. And perhaps that's some of you here. I'm not going to belabor that, but... Self-sufficiency, self-pity, both of those are rejections of God's love, his grace, and his mercy. And God cares about you more than that. And so Transit Church, this woman, she had more opportunity. She had more reason to think that Jesus wouldn't receive her than anyone else on the planet. What did she do? Somehow she was able to, to dismiss um, whatever it was in her that might have said, you know what, I'm not even worth going to this man and asking for the thing I'm about to ask. She put that to the side, and she let desperation and a little bit of hope carry her forward. She threw herself down to her feet, and because of her trust, her faith, and, I mean, just hope, Jesus heard her and responded to her, even her. And so my question, do you believe like that for your life? I mean, could, could you be so desperate? 
but also so courageous and hopeful in your desperation that Jesus would come, even when you don't think he will, and respond to your need. So that's the first illustration. Here's the second, and it's not disconnected from what we've already read. Um, verse 31, express forward. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And so Jesus is still in the, uh, Gentile territory. He's gone north outside of Israel. He's going to come back through the Sea of uh, Sidon, the Sea of Galilee, and he goes to the region of Decapolis. Uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we were in Decapolis with Jesus in chapter 6, and he had um, cast demons out of a man that was called Legion. Remember that? He, he, the, 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 the gathering demoniac who had a legion of demons inside of him. And so he's back in this same territory. Verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. I'm speculating. But if you remember in chapter, chapter 5, actually it was, with the uh, gathering demoniac, uh, Jesus, uh, the legion went into 2,000 pigs. The pigs went off a ledge and into the water and drowned. And then the people there were so freaked out by that, they actually asked him to leave. And so Jesus leaves there and, and goes north. Um, he's back, and we don't know how they reconcile the relationship, but what's happening is, just like in every other place, Jesus comes, and even though they're freaked out about what he did earlier, they recognize this man has something special about him. He's going to say something or touch something or just perform some miracle. In this case, our buddy here can't hear and he can't speak, and perhaps Jesus might be able to touch him, look at him, do something to heal him. And so I think that's that's what's happening. In a sense, this is a common occurrence, right? So Jesus I mean, everywhere he goes, he's running into people that have impediments or are unclean spirits or just something is wrong that they someone that's desperate are wanting his help. And so in a sense, it's just another common experience. But what's uncommon here is, I mean, again, the words that Mark is using to explain what's going on here. And in this case, it's two words. When he says there's a man who, had a, a, who was deaf and had a speech impediment, again, this is why the Greek is, is, is really good to know a little bit about. Speech impediment is, is, is a unique word because it's only used two times in the whole Bible. It's used right here, and it's used one other time in the Old Testament, and they're connected. And it's connected in the verse that we looked at before. Um, when Mark is writing these words, he is thinking about something that he had learned at some point about Isaiah and his prophecies 700 years prior to that. Isaiah 35, in fact. So when Mark is writing this, Isaiah 35 is on his mind, and he wants Isaiah 35 to be on our minds. This is an, an instance of an echo of the Old Testament in the New Testament that the Gospel writers and the Holy Spirit is weaving into the text. What does Isaiah 35 say? We already said it, but let's say it again. Read with me. To say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is good news. The tongue of the mute, even the one who has a speech impediment, his tongue will be released and he will sing 
for joy. And so I can just see Mark as he's writing this, hearing it from Peter, and the inside, I mean, he's just like giddy. It's like, yes, this is happening. This is good news. Why? Because the thing that God has prophesied 700 years before through the great prophet Isaiah is happening on the earth today. We we're seeing it with our eyes. The thing that God has promised he's doing in the flesh, exactly what he's promised. And we see the, 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 the implications of it in verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after that, he spat and touched his, uh, touched his tongue. Um, we've seen Jesus do this before, not this particular way of healing somebody. But this is just Jesus doing what Jesus can only do. He's coming alongside people. He's coming near. This is God coming near. He's pressing towards those who, the, who are the ill repute of society. Almost like he came near to Peter's mom when she was ill and he touched her and raised her up. It's like Jesus coming to the lepers who nobody would go through and I'm like were relegated to outside of, of the community because they were so unclean. It's Jesus coming and uh, he's coming near to these people to, to deliver them and to administer his love and his grace, even to people who were ritually and ethnically unclean. But here's what I like about this. And one commentator said this. This is Jesus actually executing some sign language. And I had never seen this before. So this man, he can't hear. He can't speak. And so what, what does Jesus do? Sign language. Now, obviously, they probably didn't have sign language like we do today. So this is what Jesus does. He communicates with the man, telling him what he's going to do before he does it. He sticks his hands in his ears, and he's saying to the man, I'm going to open your ears. And Jesus spat. I'm not going to spit because that would be gross, right? But here's what Jesus does. He spits, and he spits on his fingers. And he takes those spit-ridden fingers, and he touches that man's tongue. Imagine. It's like all you German folk people are like, nasty, Jesus. <laughs> right, right, right. And I mean, what happens? The man's, I mean, he could hear and his tongue was loosed. Look at verse 34. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. In other words, the miracle is, is coming alive right there. Uh, literally, the word... Uh, Side is Jesus groaned. He's like, ah, exhale. Uh, he's not exhaling because the miracle is finally done. He's exhaling because he is embracing the sin of the world that he created. He created it perfectly good. Sin tainted it. And he's seeing the fruition of it through this man who can't hear and speak the way he's supposed to. And so he sighs ah, because he's burdened by the brokenness of our world that we're seeing in this man. He groans the words Ephatha. Verse 35, and his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. The words tongue release literally means the chains of his tongue were released. And that's, again, good news. And it's not, of course, this is singularly about this man's ears and his tongue. But think about the chains that are on your life the chains that are on the people's lives that, you know, I mean, the stuff that we're bound by. This is the, this is the miracle, working, miracle working power of the God that we serve, that he takes the chains of our lives and he does something demonstrative. He does something simple and he looses us. Imagine yourself just crying out to Jesus very simply and he loosening you, freeing you 
so that you can hear and speak as you're supposed to. He finishes in verse 36. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well, even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. How does this parable, how does this story end? It ends in doxology. It's almost like Genesis um, chapter 1 remade. In Genesis chapter 1, God spoke and then things were created, and at the end he said, and, and it was good, right? This is Jesus performing a miracle, and the people that are watching, that are witnessing it, get to be the ones exclaiming, man, this is good. This man has done great things. It ends in doxology, and we're invited into that. And So that really is the thrust of um, this passage as Mark takes us on this journey with Jesus, that we would witness what he has done, we would marvel at it and that we would join in the doxology, that we would worship. He wants us to stop here and worship. But here's what we should also see. This, this is God's promise 700 years before that in Isaiah 35 coming to, coming to life right here in the advent of Jesus. And all the things that God has promised are going to come true. God, in the person of Jesus, he comes to liberate. As he says in Luke 4, he's come to set those who are captives free. He's come to gather and clean not just the Jews, but all peoples. He's come to gather the nations, all those that would love and trust and believe that he came to make them clean from the inside out. Whatever their background, whatever their ethnicity, whatever the, 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 the stains they might have on their life. I mean, that's why Jesus came, isn't it? He comes to bring salvation first to the Jews and then to them, to the whole world to include us, even us in this room, all those who would love and trust him. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That the implications of the life and, and death and resurrection of Jesus would not just be someone being healed, but it would be life for those who are in proximity to it. In this case, here's what Jesus has done. He's taken someone who was a dog, ethnically unclean, um, just the... The, the drag of society, and he would, he would like embrace them and bring them into his family so they would become a children, a, a child of God. And he does that for you and for I. Because the truth is all of us are dogs, right? I mean, that's kind of derogatory. Whether you love your dog or not, it's derogatory. But that's what Jesus does. He takes those of us who are scavengers, who are unclean and are just running around, rabbit. With, with just far away from God, and he brings us near to the person and the work of Jesus. And so the message of this, this, of this text, of these stories, is that for all of us, we're simply very far from Jesus, not because we're, we're not Jewish, but because we're sinful. And God makes a way for sinful people like you and I, dogs, to come near by, by sending Jesus. And ultimately, he's going to have conflict after conflict. And that conflict is going to lead to him being crucified on a cross. And he's going to die in our place for our sin. And it's there that Jesus, who, who really holds everything in his hands, is going to be like this woman. He's entitled to everything, but guess what he's going to do? He's going to go and he's going to put himself under the table. And he says, you know what? I, I've got everything. I got all power in my hands, but I'm going to stand on this table. I mean, I'm going to even reject the crumbs. He who had no sin became sin 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And he does that on the cross. He stretches out his arms and he dies in our place for you and me. He changes places with those who are dogs. He becomes a dog and he makes us a child of God. And that's the God that we serve, folks. Isn't that wonderful? And that's what we do every Sunday here. This isn't the show. We're not here because we have to. We're here because we, I mean, we're supposed to be. We want to be. We're here because we want to worship. And that's why we sing. That's why we gather. But it's also why we experience the Lord's Supper. In a moment, we're going to take bread, little crumbs of bread. And they are symbols of Jesus dying in our place for our sin. But, but let me give you this other picture of, of this crumb of bread that you're about to take and dip it into the juice representative of his blood that will, will be spilled. It's a reminder that, you know, God could have just given us this crumb of bread. And because Jesus is who he is with all power in his hand, he could really satisfy us with just giving us little bitty crumbs every once in a while to keep us afloat. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He gives us himself. And so as you're experiencing communion, I mean, again, that's your doxology. Jesus doesn't give us, give us crumbs. He doesn't call us dogs anymore. He gives us himself and calls us children of God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. Thank you for your word. I pray that um, it would reach ears that are able to hear, that you would open eyes to see how good you are, and that it would raise our hearts to praise and doxology for what you've done, dying in our place for our sin. God, I pray especially for those here who, who might say that they're struggling with self-pity. They don't think that they're worth God saving them, that they just have a, an impediment in front of them, not able to speak, not able to bow down before Jesus and even have hope that he would answer a prayer that they would have. And I pray, God, that you would wrap your arms around them and love them by your spirit. They would hear your, your spirit saying to them that, you, that they have value, that they're worth. God, I pray that you would give us all today our daily bread, that you would do something in our hearts that we can't, that you would change us, that you would incline us to yourself, that you give us comfort for all those areas of our life that we're entangled in sin and, and where we don't think we're worthy of of your love and of your grace and of your care. Would you do that for us today, Lord? I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.